So, we this morning are going to take a deep dive into King Solomon's life. If you've never heard of King Solomon, he's pretty amazing. His story is crazy. Um, but he was the son of David. David in, in Israel, in the Bible times, is regarded as Israel's greatest king so far. The greatest. Um, he was an amazing, amazing, amazing king, Solomon, especially because he was 12 years old when he was made king. That's ridiculous. He was clearly overwhelmed right at the start. He's in a sink or swim situation, but is offered a gift from God to help him. But I call it a gift, but it's actually like a test. You know when like, it might be your wife or your mate will ask you a question and it's like, that question is a trap. In my mind, because I love Star Wars growing up, whenever Amy will ask me a question like that, behind her head, Admiral Akbar comes up and goes, it's a trap. You know that guy from Star Wars? It's like that thing. And I'm like, think through your answer carefully here. Like, that's like my conscious, my spidey sense, if you like. So Solomon is saying to God in this moment, he says, you've given me a staggering task, ruling this mob of people. So obviously you can see he's, he's scared. Yes, give me wisdom and knowledge as I come and go among this people, for who on his own is capable of leading these, your glorious people? Obviously scared. He's a scared guy. That's in 2 Chronicles. God says yes, but he also says, because you've asked for that, because you asked for wisdom, not wealth or anything else like that, I'm going to give you all that stuff on top. I'm going to give you wealth and glory and success on top because you've asked for such a good gift, such a, such a brilliant gift. He rules excellently for years and years and years, and he fulfills his father David's dream of building a temple. That's like really significant for them, because before that time, they were wandering for years and years and years in a desert. They were like a nomadic people. And to build a temple in your home city is like, right, we're established. Like This is where we are. This is our promised land. We've landed. We've arrived, I suppose, as a nation. That's the idea behind that. Also, him and his team of writers, after this time... They're so wise, and his wisdom is so amazing that he writes these amazing books that we find in our Bible. Now he, he writes Proverbs, he writes the Song of Solomon, and Ecclesiastes, but Ecclesiastes is like much later on, on in his life. And such wisdom was never seen before in Israel. He made, he made all sorts of trade deals and, and, uh, and made all sorts of uh, like bonds with different nations. Like David was an amazing king, but he was a king of war. There were so many battles in his time, and he dominated. But Solomon, was a, it was the first sort of time that Israel had, had established peace for like a real significant period of time. He managed to hold peace with the other surrounding nations. It was, he was an amazing king. But somewhere, it all starts to go wrong. So this is 1 Kings 11, verse 1 to 8. King Solomon was obsessed with women. Pharaoh's daughter was only the first of many foreign women he loved. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite. He took them from the surrounding pagan nations of which God had clearly warned Israel, you must not marry them. They'll seduce you into infatuations with their God, with their gods. Solomon fell in love with them anyway. Even though he was wise, he fell in love with them anyway, refusing to give them up. He had 700 royal wives and 300 concubines. Just, just quickly there, a thousand women. I'm, look, I, listen, I'm not, I'm not going to be sexist here. This is just my experience in my life. 
imagine being told to do the dishes or take the bins out a thousand times. It'd be like surround sound. Take the bins out, take the bins out, take the bins out. It would be outrageous. Back to scripture. Um, <laughs> he had 700 rulers, 300 concubines, a thousand women in all, and they did seduce him away from God. As Solomon grew older, his wives beguiled him with their alien gods, and he became unfaithful. He didn't stay true to his God as his father David had done. Solomon took up with Ashereth, the whore goddess. Look, don't judge me, it says it in the Bible. Goddess of the Sidonians and Moloch, the horrible god of the Ammonites. Solomon openly defied God. He did not follow in his, father, in his father David's footsteps. He went on to build a sacred shrine to Chemosh, the horrible god of Moab, and to Moloch, the horrible god of the Ammonites, on a hill just east of Jerusalem. He built similar shrines for all his foreign wives, who then polluted the countryside with the smoke and stench of their sacrifices. That bit is really important right there, right at the end. If you don't know, the smoke and stench of their sacrifices would have been children that were sacrificed. Like... I know I'm immediately dropping in a big intensity bomb, which is classic Jacob Hobbs, but it's no joke. Like, it's a serious failure. It's a serious failure in judgment to be worshipping gods where you have to sacrifice your children in order to worship them. It's a serious mistake. Somehow, even with all his wisdom, with that godly gift of wisdom, and he proved that it kept him on a straight and narrow for so long, somehow it went wrong. It just seems weird to me. But for the answer, we need to go back before his birth, into David's failure. This is his dad. David sees Bathsheba, a beautiful woman, on, on a roof, and he knows, he knows that she's married, and he sleeps with her anyway. He invites her around to his big palace, and he sleeps with her. And then, to go on to make it even worse, he murders Uriah, which is Bathsheba's husband. He plots and plans and arranges his murder, which is crazy, Eventually, then, it's all confronted. It all comes out between David and his subjects and his prophet Nathan. And then it's all sort of reconciled, I suppose, in like a weird kind of not really, but kind of way. And then David marries Bathsheba. Now, they have a son from, this, um, from the time where they slept together, but that son passes away. And they have another son after that, and that turns out to be Solomon himself. So he's wrapped up in this story. He's born into a relationship that should never have really happened. He's born into sin sort of immediately, and it clings to his life, clings to his life. Ever from the point where he's born, he's living in this environment of sin. All of his life is sort of stained with it, stained with this environment of this big mistake that David's made. It's not a smooth start at all. And even before Solomon is king... At the point of his crowning, it really rears its head badly. There's another brother, I suppose, that he has, half-brother, I think it'd be a half-brother, called Adonijah, who is the rightful heir to the throne. He's the rightful heir to the throne. But David picks Solomon, he picks Solomon to be king instead, even though, like I said, Adonijah is a natural heir. David's subjects are split over their support because they know that Solomon shouldn't really be alive. Like, he should never have existed. David and Bathsheba should never be together. Bathsheba should have stayed with Uriah, and it should never have happened like that. So he's rejected before he's even crowned the king, even though David picked him as the rightful guy. 
He's quickly made king in order to fulfill David's wish and to save him and Bathsheba from being killed by the subjects that follow Adonijah. So there's controversy, and this sin of David is affecting his present straight away. You can see why he was so overwhelmed when he newly became king. It would have been like, wow, okay, I'm king, and half the kingdom, or certainly half of the subjects, David's loyal subjects, don't support me. They don't even want me here. I've got the pressure of being king, and I'm not even fully supported as it is. So, obviously, he rules for years and years and years, using all this wisdom that God gives him, but eventually, he makes this mistake with the, with the worshipping the foreign gods, and he can't resist himself, but marry the women that are going to lead him astray, even though God warns him, and God puts a stop to it in the end. It falls apart because he inherited the pitfalls of his father. He was born into sin and it became the inheritance of his life. In the height of his reign, God steps in and puts a stop to Solomon. And you can hear the regret and the pain in his voice in Ecclesiastes 2. I'm paraphrasing it, but if you get a chance, read Ecclesiastes. It's amazing. If you're feeling low, don't read it. It's going to tip you over the edge. But it's knowing the context of it. And then reading Ecclesiastes is absolutely amazing. You can see he's built up this amazing kingdom for himself. He's got all this success, and it's really powerful, and it all falls apart because of this mistake that he makes. And he just, he's utterly heartbroken, utterly heartbroken. He says, like I say, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, I had it all, wealth, fame, wisdom, and women. He even references the women. But it's all ended as nothing, just smoke and spitting into the wind. Solomon's obsession with women he couldn't have became his downfall. Just like his dad, like father, like son, he inherited his father's sin. He could see clearly the pain and suffering it caused himself. He even writes in Proverbs, like a dog that returns to its vomit. Sorry, a bit disgusting. It's early morning. Enjoy your mash. It is a fool who repeats his foolishness. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his foolishness. He saw his dad's sin. He saw it. It actually poured over into his own life and he experienced it. It clung to his own life, but he still couldn't break free from it. He still couldn't break free from it. Lots of people in in Christianity talk about generational sin and You can argue that it's a spiritual thing if you want to. That's great. You might be right. You might be wrong. It doesn't really matter. But what is definitely true is that sin spills out over onto the people that surround you. And it hurts. And it clings to you. It clings to you like a bad smell. And, you know, sometimes it's so painful. It's so painful when it happens to you that it makes you curious. It makes you curious. We are obsessed with heartbreak. We are, as human beings, we're obsessed with heartbreak. We can't help it. We can't help it. How many times have you prayed, why did that happen to me? How many times have you prayed that? We all do it. We all do it. I'm, I'm just the same. I'm not, I'm, when I say you, I mean me. We're all the same. Like We all do it. We're obsessed with heartbreak. David's sin became Solomon's. In all his wisdom, it wasn't enough. Sometimes we know what's right and wrong, but we do it anyway. We become a product of the environment. We inherit the sin done to us, or we live in the environment of the pain that came before us. It's so crazy that even if we manage to avoid following people down the sin route that they go, by sin I mean mistake, mess up, slip up, hurt, pain. Even if we don't follow them down that way, so often our trust is broken. And the people around us 
they're so, like, it, it carries on. We, we carry trust issues, and then the people that we're supposed to be loving to and show trust to, that they've done nothing wrong to us, they have to work so hard to gain our trust because sin from our past bleeds into our present or our future. It can be really powerful, can't it? And we all know that pain, whether you had a good parent or a bad parent, we all know that pain. And even statistically, it's crazy that if you've got a parent that struggles with alcohol or substance abuse or something like that, you are statistically more likely to go down that route as well. You're more likely. Isn't it crazy? That's crazy that that happens to us. We know how much that hurts. If, if you are someone who lives in that, you know how painful that is. You know how painful it is. Why do we follow that? It's so crazy. Our obsession with heartbreak, we can't help it. We can't help it, can we? I don't believe it's a conscious thing. I believe it's a question asked inside the hidden parts of us that not even we understand. That person chose that action or sin over me, over my welfare. My heart is broken because of it. They picked that action over my well-being Why was that action more important than me? I can't ignore my own heartbreak, so I follow it down the path until I become the very thing that hurt me in the first place. Even if you don't follow them into the action, you might live in that environment of sin. You might become a product of your environment, and it goes on and on and on, and we pass it on to the people that are around us. We become that bad smell. We become that that horrible clinging sensation, and we pass it on and on. If wisdom can't break it, then what can? Solomon was the wisest king in Israel's history. Some people, some scholars say, is the wisest man that ever lived. It's God-given wisdom, and he proved it with the success of his nation. But if, if wisdom can't break it, what can? Are we doomed to this inheritance of heartbreak? Are we trapped in the environment of sin and hurt forever? I know personally... I've tried and I've tried and I've tried to break it, like my own version of that. I'm going to counselling at the moment, and it's one of the best decisions I've ever made. It's expensive, but it's brilliant, and it's worth it, because it's going to cost me way more to not go. It's, It's a really, really powerful thing, but we can do this over and over again. We can look for quick fixes, we can look for things, and we can pray to God that he would take it away. But I don't think it's quite as simple as that. I don't think it's, it's as simple as that. I think it's a daily thing that we need to pick up. I think it's a daily thing, a daily renewal that we need to pick up of our minds. This amazing, amazing, amazing bit of scripture talks about it. Here, it's in Ephesians 1, verse 3 to 10. Um, Al, if you want to come up. And George. It talks about an inheritance that we have in Jesus. It was planned before we were born. If you get a chance to read this whole chapter, do it. It's absolutely amazing. I didn't want to make it too long or read for too long, but it just talks about this incredible inheritance that before that sin that happened to you ever happened to you, this was put out in God's plan. This was his plan for your life. Not not that inheritance that hangs over you, not that black mark, that sin that clings to your life and affects your future and affects the people around you. Not that environment of sin, but this plan. It's good. Listen up. How blessed is God and what a blessing he is. He's the father of our master, Jesus Christ, and takes us to the high places of blessing in him. 
Long before he laid down the earth's foundations, he had us in mind, had settled on us as the focus of his love, to be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. What pleasure he took in planning this. He wanted us to enter into, into the celebration of his lavish gift given by the hand of his beloved son. It's wordy, but it's amazing. Because of the sacrifice of the Messiah, so because of the sacrifice of Jesus dying on the cross for you, his blood poured out on the altar of the cross, we're free people. We're free people. Free of penalties and punishments, chalked up by all our misdeeds, even if they were because of the misdeeds that came before you. Even if they're because of that, we're free from that. We're not just barely free either, abundantly free. He thought of everything, provided for everything we could possibly need, letting us in on the plans he took such delight in making. He set it all out before us in Christ, a long-range plan in which everything would be brought together and summed up in him. Everything in deepest heaven, everything on planet Earth. Us being adopted into a new family, it gives us a new inheritance. It gives us a new inheritance. We don't have to inherit what's come before us. We don't have to inherit what's done to us. As a, as a youth leader, all, even already in the small amount of time that we've been doing it, me and Ames, we talk about it all the time. We have seen so much talent wasted, chained up by the sin, the hurt, and the pain that's been done to the young people that we serve. It's crazy. What gift have you got in you right now that isn't used because you're hurting? What is it? There's something in you. God has done something amazing in you. He's put it in you from your birth, from before your birth. And something happened to you and it lays dormant in you forever because of that. It's not easy. This isn't an easy thing. I'm not, I'm not standing here saying I've got it all sorted out. That's why I'm going to counselling. And it's a cool experience. I, I recommend it. If, if you've got some serious stuff going on and it doesn't miraculously get solved in a moment with God, which often it doesn't because he loves time and he uses time, I really, uh, I really would encourage you to, to see a professional, somebody who really knows what they're doing, to try and help heal this and, and build this. But also, you need a why. You need a why. And there's something in you that God wants to use that he can't right now because heartbreak's got you chained up. It's got you chained up. There's this little thing when I was thinking about this. I thought of, I, I love that bit in, in The Matrix. And if you haven't seen The Matrix, you need to stop listening to this preach right now because it's not important enough. You need to go home. You need to watch The Matrix. There's a bit where Morpheus, like Neo, a character in The Matrix, has been shown this new reality. He's been shown that the, the, the environment that he lives in isn't real. It's not true. It's all a, a fake. It's all a, a lie, a facade. And he's shown the truth. And then he's given this option. It's like a red pill and a blue pill. And he's like, you can take... One of these pills is going to make you live in the true life, in your real reality, in the reality, I suppose, if we're linking it to this, that God has actually got for you, the actual environment that God planned out for you. Or you can go back to the old life. You can take the other pill and you can go back to the old life and you can live in that environment that's got you chained up. And I don't think this is going to be done in a moment. I think this is a daily thing. I think it's a daily thing. You've got to wake up in the morning 
And you've got to look at, look at the pill and think, which one am I going to take? Which reality am I going to live in this morning? Am I going to live in the reality where my heart's broken and I'm chained up and it holds me back and it hurts the people that are around me? Or am I going to choose the new reality, the new inheritance that God had for me, that God planned out for me before I was born? Let's pray. Let's pray. God, I'm, uh, I'm treading on eggshells, and I know uh, heartbreak is really sensitive. And I'm, I'm praying that uh, I haven't oversimplified this. God, even if I don't get where people are at, I know you do. You suffered the ultimate heartbreak. You sent your son to die. It's never, it's never gone deeper than that. The hurt and the pain, it's never gone deeper than that. You get it. You get it. Even if I don't, I'm just the guy with a microphone. You get it. That's why you planned it out for us, God. Before we were born, you gave us the antidote for heartbreak. You planned it out. It's all in your purpose. God, I thank you for the care that you put in, the attention to detail. For those in the room that are scared right now to, to face this. Thank you for, for the care that you put in, that time that you put in, every little thing, every little thing, every detail of, of our fear, of our shame and our regret. You're there, you know, and you're there, you've got us. Thank you, God. Praise you, praise your name. Lord, I pray that you give people courage. You give people courage to, to look at this. To pick up the new inheritance, to be set free and to let those, those giftings go out and be used to glorify you, to give us purpose, to help us see amazing things happen in people's lives. What an exciting thought. What an exciting thought that our heartbreak can be traded for stories of healing, of adventure, of purpose, of excitement. You're a good God.